Assalamualaikum, peace be upon you. Welcome to today's episode of Arwain Reflections. Today is the West. Today's episode is all about the experience of Muslims migrating from the East or countries which were Muslim dominated in the East into a new environment and that environment being the West in which either Islam was not known or in some cases Islam was considered an antithetical or confrontational existence to the order in the West. And it's also about what happens in Western communities Europe, America, the UK. What happens to them as a result of the introduction of Islam? How do things change? And how does a Muslim, or in this case of our discussion, a Shi'i identity develop in the West, which is born from little bits of the East and little bits of the West to create what seems like something new? Now, to understand a little bit about what that happens and, and what that means, we have with us two uh, great speakers, great reciters um, in their own right, who are also from the environment of the West, just like me. We have Sheikh Nabil Awan, who is a reciter, a scholar, and a student of the Hausa, based in Peterborough. He has been lecturing and, and educating for as long as I can remember, and, and he has a very special way to connect with, with audiences by speaking um, like in a way which is just so relatable if you're from here. And so Agha Nabil, we're very honored to have him. And with the Nuri Sardar. Nuri, who is known for being a, a poet of uh, Shahid of Ahlul Bayt in the language of English, um, has worked on many famous you know well-known projects here in the west but also Nuri's is important for his you know pioneering efforts to establish english english as a language for azadari and as language for dhikr of ahl al-bayt and as a language in which we can convey and you know uh, preach new forms of tabligh of, of spreading the words of islam um, and many are following his footsteps to develop what is now like a trend of english poetry and, and long may it continue so join me Nuri and Sheikh Nabil to discuss this idea of the West and a Muslim's role in the West. Mm -hmm. So beginning the discussion about uh, the West and the Muslim engagement with the West and also Shi engagement with the West. Um, to you first, Agha Nabil, you know, when we look at migration in our history and we look at the idea of the Muslims moving from one place to another, it seems like since the beginning of the time of the Holy Prophet, there's been this idea of moving from one place to another. And only now we have it as the West. But how far back do we have this idea of migrating to a new place to establish the religion? Yeah, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Um, as far back as early Islam, so you have the Muslims that went to Abyssinia, uh, modern-day Ethiopia, around that area, um, you know, to avoid persecution. And um, again, that whole idea of hijra in Islam is about uh, moving in order to preserve your faith. So there's a group of these Muslims that go to Abyssinia in order to avoid the persecution uh, from the, the Meccans and the Quraysh at the time, and in order to preserve their faith. And by and large, they manage to preserve their faith. There are a few exceptions in there, uh, but by and large, they go to uh, Abyssinia and they maintain their faith and then they come back as well. You know, there's reports of uh, people like Ja'far uh, at Tayyar, Ja'far ibn Abu Talib, the older uh, brother of Imam Ali, coming back just after the Battle of Khaybar uh, and the Holy Prophet welcoming him back. 
Uh, so right on, early uh, on in the message of uh, uh, Islam and the, the mission of Rasulullah, uh, there is this movement of uh, leaving uh, the land that you're in in order to preserve your faith to go elsewhere. Then we have multiple uh, ahadith that speak about you know gaining knowledge, going well overseen, even if you have to go as far as China um, to seek knowledge, then you must go. Um, or others, even if you must go to the people of nifaq or, or the people of disbelief uh, to go and seek knowledge, to go and seek wisdom, then go and do that. Because wisdom is the lost treasure of the believer. So there is this long-standing history of uh, Muslims moving. Um, and there are various hadith and traditions that we have where they come back and they talk to the imams, the holy prophet, about their issues uh, in the countries that they live in. Mm. On, um, so that's migration in general. So we kind of understand the reasons why the Muslims would migrate or why they were required to, to spread the religion or to gain knowledge, as you mentioned. Um, in terms of the idea of migrating to the West, we see this idea sometimes where the Muslim empire was engaging with Rome, for example, but that might not be the best way to look at the situation today. Looking back a couple of generations, how has it been Muslims migrating to the West? Like, is it recent this has been happening? And, you know, people speak about waves of migration. Could you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, uh, you have uh, early on, uh, you know, with interactions of Muslim traders uh, coming this way. Uh, you know, they've found burial sites of Vikings uh, with sort of Arabic scripture alongside them because they've been trading uh, with Muslims or Muslims have come uh, quite far out. You have the Moors in, in Spain as well during some of the conquests uh, of Islam. So a lot of Muslims coming out uh, towards the West uh, previously, uh, it, there has been a history of people exploring, going further, um, you know, for the in the pursuit of knowledge or trade. Mm. And then the situation we're in now is after that's happened over time, we now have you know Muslims not just living in the West but establishing communities in the West, establishing. Um, their families yeah. and you know becoming part of the system I wonder I would maybe bring you in uh, brother Nuri who's listening so patiently when you look at Muslims who are in the east who you've met and Muslims in the west do you see like a difference in them as a result of all these the history Aga Nabil mentioned do, do they look different today or are we like one community I mean there's definitely night and day um, you know I think when it comes to diaspora they have you know, this kind of this you, we have this kind of universal uh, mindset, which is we don't feel like we belong here. We don't feel like we belong there. You know, I think everyone here kind of agrees with that. You know, when we go back home, uh, you know, though we're connected to our heritage, though, though we might speak the same language, we feel a sense of home. But sometimes, even if in, in the beginning we feel at home, the longer we stay there, the more out of place we feel. And then we come over here and we find that, you know, we don't feel out, uh, we don't feel uh, in place here either. And I wanted to kind of like, uh, take a step back to one of the first questions that you had on this um, question list uh, that you wanted to ask us, which is what is the West and what does it mean to you? Uh, and I was just kind of like reflecting on that. You know, I think there's so many answers to that question, but I think one thing that's very interesting about the West and you mentioned history and, uh, and you know, uh, Nibiru mentioned civilizations as well and, and how things have changed before we started. 
when you look at the East and our idea of the East in terms of Muslim countries and stuff, uh, you know, that's over 1,000 years of Muslim heritage and history, right? And the West ultimately is over 1,000 years of non-Muslim heritage and history. So that's 1,000 years of civilization, uh, civilizations built on, unlike what Muslim countries are built on, uh, built on uh, anything other than Islam, be it Christ Christianity, uh, atheism, you know, secularism, stuff like that. Um, so what's so interesting is that we as Muslims, the ones who have kind of like moved here, be it our generations, the generation before us, the one before that, we've been placed in this society that is over 1,000 years of non-Muslimness, you know, over 1,000 years of, of, of everything that is antithetical to, uh, to Islam in terms of, you know, uh, in terms of what, what's apparent belief and stuff like that. So I think that's what's just so interesting is that we've been uprooted and, 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 and placed in these countries where, you know, we're, we're so lucky to have, you know, in, ma in many ways, freedom to, to, to practice and preach that we may, that some of us may not have in our home countries. But it's much like, you know, as Nabil mentioned, the, the, the hijra of uh, those companions that moved uh, to Africa, you know, they were the first Muslims in that uh, arena. And, they, and, and, and it's kind of interesting to think about how they would have had to deal with society. As Nabil mentioned, some of them didn't make it. Some of them left Islam, you know, uh, and uh, others uh, flourished. So I think that whole conversation is a very uh, interesting conversation to have, but there's definitely a, a huge, you know, difference between Muslims uh, in the East and Muslims in the West, at least in my experience. I mean, I think there's a, a, a difference in Muslims when you move from country to country, whether it be America, UK or Australia, I think there's a difference in Muslims, uh, let alone uh, comparing us to, you know, Pakistan or Iraq or Afghanistan or, or how, how, how things are back home. Mm -hmm. And it's like once the person migrates to this country, they have to almost reconstruct their identity in the new environment. So now they choose, like you have to decide, does your religion actually apply in this country? Or does your, you know, even your culture, which practices do we adopt? Which ones do we leave behind? And you're right. We see some who they embrace their religion whilst allowing it to exist as simultaneous to their new environment. But some people, like they leave their religion on account of their migration and you know, it's sad. Maybe you have seen this happen where people, they come over to the country and then over time, they feel like they cannot be a Muslim in the West. And for them, their religion becomes, you know, expendable. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've seen examples within our own lifetimes um, of different waves of Muslims that have come. I mean, the Indo-Pak community has been here arguably longer than many of the others being... Uh, British colonies uh, prior to that. So a lot of people, especially to England, were able to come uh, for work or, you know, the migration was very easy. Uh, once they got here to establish themselves, um, that's a whole, you know, different and interesting topic. If you speak to your fathers about how they uh, initially came in the 50s, 60s and 70s uh, as single men and how they maintained their faith, or if indeed they forgot their faith um, and then it was only when they got married and you know started coming back here and settling down with families that faith then began to flourish and then obviously the revolution in Iran uh, also had a massive catalyst and an uh, awakening amongst people uh, in the west and especially here in England as well that even those communities that were practicing some form of Islam but after that revolution, there was an awakening, uh, so much so within the people that the people began to take the religion a lot more seriously here uh, within England. Um, and you know, even more recently, you have like 
the Bosnian War. And there were a lot of refugees that came at that time, Kosovo. You know, a lot of Muslim refugees came at that time, but we've seen them, you know, there were many friends uh, of ours at school as well during those times. And you saw them that they were Muslim, but they were forced to live with, for example, non-Muslim foster parents. And so they've lost their uh, faith as well. Um, and so you have different groups that come in. Um, and I don't think that's Islam's fault. You know, that, that question, unfortunately, is our own ignorance that we sort of think, oh, well, can Islam fit in here? No, the Islam has been created for it to fit in everywhere, mm. for it to be of use everywhere. Um, it's just our lack of understanding of it that somehow holds us back and things that uh, think and makes us think that we actually have to compromise on certain things. Even modern day right now, you know, you see second generation, third generation. Um, there are some real issues, um, especially now. The issue isn't with Islam, although people make it out like it's an issue with Islam. The issue is with culture, the culture of their parents and the culture of the society within which they're living. And nowhere is there a, um, uh, you know, a discussion on Islam, just poor Islam that gets blamed every time, you know, my parents say I have to do this, I want to do this, this must mean Islam is wrong. You know, the logic is so out of whack uh, in those statements, but we see it over and over here in England, in America, a lot more. So, you know, there's that clash that's happening, but in reality, it isn't Islam's fault. People haven't understood the religion, unfortunately. I think, just if I can jump in on that point, I think when you, the kind of conversation around uh, people leaving Islam or being dis disenfranchised with Islam, Muslims specifically who live in the West, I feel like sometimes we forget that that's a, a common occurrence, maybe even more so uh, in the East. I remember speaking to one of my friends uh, in Karbala, and this is not reflective of all youth in Karbala, but just his like particular uh, group of friends. And I said, what, 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 what's the main issue you guys are having? And I said, well, I'll be honest with you, bro. He said, I'll be honest with you, the, the, one of the main issues we're having is a lot of my friends are becoming atheists. People who are in Karbala by the shrine and living there and, and still serving in Muakib. And when I heard that, I was like, okay, oh, maybe because they don't understand it. And, or maybe they're just, you know, not very learned. They're like, no, they actually researched the Richard Dawkins and, and, and his teachings and read his books. So they really reached that level. So I think that, you know, I don't think that us being here, I don't think that people kind of becoming disenfranchised with Islam or, or even leaving Islam is something exclusive to us. Uh, living in the West. I think it happens in the East. Uh, and, and, and there may be even an argument to say it happens more so because here, I feel like in the West, the lines between uh, good and evil uh, or, or good and uh, wrong uh, are less blurry. In the East, I feel like it's, it, it's much more blurry because everywhere you go, there are Muslims. Everywhere you go, there is Islam, right? So when you see wrong, uh, it's, it, it's less apparent, I feel, that, than it is here. Um, and I think even that aside, like just kind of maybe turning the conversation a bit and, and, and switching the context, going back to one of the questions you had in your list, which is what, what is what does the West mean to you? I think one thing we're forgetting is that the West has always in all my understanding literature, even in Islamic, uh, even in early Islamic uh, writings has always represented like the frontier, the place to explore, you know, everyone's always tried to journey westward to see what there is, what's going on, what kind of, you know, a community to each other. And I, even me personally, and you know, I, I have a lot of enjoyment traveling west and, and and exploring and i feel like 
when you think of the West in that kind of context, it becomes less of this place that, you know, we should be uh, uh, careful of and cautious of because it's not Muslim and, and, and kind of, uh, you know, feel out of place of, but rather a place that we should enjoy exploring because we're almost travelers here more so than we are in our Eastern countries, referring to our heritage, right? As Muslims, we are new here, which represents struggle. It represents hardship, but it also represents a lot of opportunity, which I think is very important, which is why a lot of people that I speak to talk about how there's so much potential for Shia Muslims in America because there's just so much to do there in comparison than there is to here, for example, where we're much more well-established. So I think if you think of the West as less of, um, you know, something holding us down, something to be f afraid of, some, something that we don't kind of fit into, but more so as an opportunity to spread Islam, as you said yourself, you know, when Muslims uh, traveled in Hijra, uh, it was, as Sheikh Nibal said, to protect their uh, to protect their faith, but also they spread Islam wherever they went, right? So I think, I think if we think about the the West in terms of that context as a place of opportunity and 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 a place to grow, uh, I think that's definitely very beneficial, and that's definitely uh, one of my perspectives. Yeah, I mean, uh, when I'm talking, uh, or I, when I saw that question, uh, you know, what do you perceive of the West, or what do you, and I I said to myself, oh, it's home, you know, <laughs> it's home, like. I'm more. We forget, I, we, we forget I, that sometimes. Yeah, I was born here. I grew up here. This is home. Like uh, you know, I don't see myself separate. Obviously, when we go into these discussions and we start discussing the various aspects of our lives here, uh, we start to think, okay, maybe you know. But in reality, this is home. And there's been a history of Muslims here. You know, from early, early on, um, there was one of the shuyukh I was speaking to who does a lot of work on literature. And you know, he was talking about books like Baba Hadi Asher that had been translated by non-Muslim British academics in the early, you know, 1700s, 1600s, back then, where they they're accessing Arabic manuscripts and they're they're you know uh, translating them. Uh, so there's always been that uh, interaction, I think. When and, we studied that book in the Hausa here, one so of the the reasons, when we studied that book here yeah. in the Hausa. We were looking for like good translations because we were new to Arabic and that one by Morrow which was translated in like the 80s or 70s was like a better translation than some of the modern ones we had now and it drew attention to how long academic engagement with the east and west has been it's been ages well for the for the scholars to discuss it's only now that the lay people are having these discussions yeah exactly and I mean you know for me it's always been a bit of a thing you know where people sort of say okay what about you know the the West? I mean, I don't see myself separate from the West. Um, you know, we have narrations talking about one of the signs of the reappearance of the Imam is that the sun will rise from the West. And Shaykh Mutahri has an interesting take on it. He says, look, the sun rising from the West doesn't necessarily mean that it's physically going to rise from the West. Rather, it's the rise of Islam. And as uh, Brother Nuri said that you know in the East, yeah, those lines are very blurred, and that you know people are you're so confused and they're very lackadaisical whereas where we are by and large very uh focused on our you know wajibat and stuff like that over there you know people aren't as much uh well aren't as focused really as we are over here um and so it's not all bad i remember i was um writing some articles for uh, one of these it was a, a shia online a shia newspaper um, and they were asking me to write sort of articles. And I, 
and I'd send it back and it was from back east, you know, they were, and they were publishing it out there. So I would write these articles and send them back. And, you know, the guy would come back and say, oh, you know, this is a bit, it, it, it's a bit of a good light. Can you, you know, can you edit it a bit? And I'd be like, well, it's truth. And then we had this back and forth for a couple of weeks. Eventually I said to him, look, I don't know what you want me to say. We're living perfectly fine lives here. You know, I can practice my religion. I can, you know, like, I don't know what you want me to say. It's not all evil like you think it is. They want us to feel like we're in constant confrontation and like every day is like a yeah. jihad or something. Yeah, it's not the case. It's not. I mean, even people living here are trying to tell us we're constantly in conflict. Well, yeah, there might be some underlying anti-Muslim hatred, but I can sleep at night, you know, because uh, I'm not in London, knowing that <laughs> no one's going to kick my door in and come, you know, to. But outside of that, even if I was in London, you know, I could sleep at night calmly, like no one's going to come and start attacking me for being a Muslim or, you know, blowing my house up for being a Shia. I wonder though that, okay, it's true. Like we, all of us, we have this feeling where we are Western and I get it, but then there are those moments which we can't ignore where you question either they are not perfectly fitting with one another, being a Muslim and being in the West. There are moments where this happens growing up as, you know, even raising children in schools and things like this. And there are moments where you do question whether or not we have some work to do to make it more of a natural fit, which we didn't inherit. I mean, both of you, I think, you know, you both of you grew up here, Nuri, you have a baby, so I know that you're going to be raising a child here as well. Like, do you, ever, do you guys ever worry about, you know, the next generation having to figure things out for themselves, which we haven't done for them, especially in schooling and education? Yeah, I mean, definitely. Um, you know, one of the things, at least I can speak from my own city, I, I don't know about other cities, but one of the things that w our elders did, they were very involved with the council, with uh, non-executive director positions in the NHS and stuff. Um, and so they got a lot of things done, you know, halal meals in the hospitals and all of that sort of stuff. And you'd think that naturally, you know, this uh, would continue. But actually, we as the second generation would be like, oh, you know what, that, that's too much. There's not enough reward for that because they don't pay you for those sort of uh, community service type things I much rather pursue my career and so what's happening is in that pursuit we're losing a lot of that social um, uh, weight that we had behind us you know that influence that we had in the wider society um, I think you know that's one thing the second thing is yeah I mean it's a scary prospect with the way things are changing you know 10 years ago it wasn't like this what is now commonplace was you know, 10 years ago frowned upon and things are changing. And that's where we as uh, parents, as prospective parents need to learn to adapt. And that's why Emil Mubinin, he says that, he says, don't try and raise your children like you were raised because their time is different and your time was different. Yeah, I think just to add to that point, I think it is um, very scary times. You know, I think with the, the, the rise of, and, and with, with news definitely becoming more and more, uh, you know, definitely selling more, more 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 scary stories than it used to um i think it's it's obvious that we're we're, we're living in uh very scary times but I, I i would say that it's very easy to fall into that kind of despair mentality 
um, you know, there's no doubt that right now, for example, even like raising kids aside, there is no doubt that right now we're living in an unprecedented Islamophobic time with Trump in the White House, with the way uh, things are moving here and the rise of right-wing nationalism uh, in Europe. This, the West, you know, U U USA, uh, UK and, uh, and Europe is really heading toward scary times. And it kind of makes me think about, you know, um, how uh, the generations before us grew up, let's say, for example, in Pakistan or, or, or Iraq. I think Iraq is a great example because I have a lot of friends uh, who are Iraqi and, and, and basically every Shia pretty much that we, that we know left Iraq uh, to migrate here. And it's interesting because they grew up never, you know, never thinking that one day they'll be living on the other side of the world in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in, in the UK, in London, uh, raising kids and having a family there. And, you know, we don't know our future either. You know, I'm not saying that, that that's going to happen to us. Um, but, you know, we don't know where we're going to be in 20, 30, 40, 50 years. So it is definitely uh, uh, scary times, but I would say there needs to be an element of, of faith and tawakal as well, right? Because you can fall into absolute uh, despair in, in every which way. Uh, and I think that we need to continuously have an element of, you know, as, as Nabil said, making sure we get involved, uh, making sure we try and push uh, things towards uh, ways that benefit not just us, but communities around us as well. Um, but also ensuring that we have a bit of tawakko, that we have a bit of faith in God. You know, we don't, uh, uh, we understand the times we're living in, but we don't fall prey uh, to fear and just keep living our lives and just kind of like, you know, ride the wave uh, of life and see where it goes. Uh, so I, I, I think that is definitely a very important mentality to have. But yeah, it is very scary times. You know, and we do have to understand uh, the way things are moving, especially like you said, with, with raising kids, uh, you know, with RSC, for example, as well. Um, things are very challenging uh, and things will become more challenging uh, for Muslim parents. Um, but there are, but, you know, if you see it as something else to tackle, something else to, 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 to interact with and, and overcome for the better of society, I think you, it can be taken back as a positive. If, if Islamophobia was, because you mentioned it's a very important point, and also Shia phobia, which is, you know, become more and more recognizable as well. If these things were simply amongst people, they would be similar to what we've dealt with. But sometimes it's like these things are part of the institution that we're living in. It's as if, you know, the police, the biases they have, education, you mentioned, some things are written into policies, the government, like there's some things which are very normal in the government, which we would not, stances we would not necessarily take. And it's almost like, sometimes it's like we're taking on an entire system. We're not just taking on people. I know you've got a lot of experience, especially, you know, being a counsellor as well and working with government here. Like, do you ever feel like some of these issues are systemic rather than just community-based? Oh, yeah. I mean, um, I, I don't think necessarily they're entrenched within law or they're written in law, but that are the um, executors of that law or the, um, you know, the figureheads. Uh, are many a times, you know, uh, at a local level, they're, um, you know, they're, they're fossils, they're dinosaurs. They really haven't moved forward. They haven't developed. And so they have these um, ideas and these preconceived notions that then do affect the lives of Muslims and things like that. Um, and that, that's not to say that there isn't a movement, you know, an underlying tone. There most definitely is. But then, in what time wasn't there, you know, an underlying movement? Even in the time of the Prophet, in the Madanite society, forget the Kuffar, the Prophet had his hands full with the Munafiqeen that were surrounding him. So it's always part and parcel of a society 
where there's some people that are working towards good and there's some people that are trying to sabotage uh, that good. And I think, because uh, if we, we go all doom and gloom and this is what's going to happen, and, you know, and really, uh, there is a, a solution for it from fiqh. If you really believe that you can't preserve your faith in this environment, uh, you know, the solution is quite simple. Do hijrah, go somewhere else, you know. But, and that, a lot of the times I do I say that to people as well. Because um, there, you know, there's this constant despair. Oh no, this is going to happen, and this is what the government's doing, and this is what they. Okay, well, you know, do something about it. Get involved. Raise a voice. Yeah, protesting and stuff is good, but actually getting to key positions, you know, you can enter into non-political key positions. There are non-executive directors, for example, on NHS or lay people positions on your you know, CCG, your community, uh, the GPs, the, the overarching body that runs all of your local healthcare, your schools, uh, the governing body, they have positions for parents on there. Yeah. So you have all of these different places that a person can get. And even if they say, oh, I'm anti-politics, this, haram, whatever, they can at least get involved on that level, right? To try and better uh, on a social level, in a non-political way. Uh, but I don't think that we're doing that. And then we sort of like, oh, why, is, why aren't these people understanding who we are or what we do? And uh, so I think uh, you know, a lot of the times it's just uh, our um, complacency. Yeah, and I think just leading on from that point, because Abbas, you mentioned uh, Shia phobia as well. Um, you mentioned that Shia phobia is on the rise, but Shia phobia has always uh, been there. It's always been deep rooted. It always will be there, you know, regardless of, of, uh, of, of how much you, you try to fight it, people will always uh, uh, hate us uh, from other communities simply because we are, all, we are a constant reminder of an, alter, of an alternate narrative. We are a constant reminder of an alternate narrative, whether, whether, whether no matter what kind of work you do, um, no matter what position you're in, uh, you will always be a reminder to others that, that there is an alternate narrative and they can either embrace that or they can hate you for it, you know, or, 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 or coexist with it. Um, so I think, you know, Shia phobia will, will, will always be there. Um, I think, I also think that we, we, you know, Nabil mentioned, uh, you know, we don't want to fall into doom, doom and gloom. And I, and I, I do feel like we, we sometimes fall into uh, a trap of what I believe to be at least, uh, this idea that we are now living in the worst time that there ever was. Um, mm. personally, I think when you look at history, there's always been continuous ups and downs, you know, a hundred years ago, the Nazis were in power and, 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 you know, mass killing, uh, uh Jews and other minorities. Um, there's been plenty of times in history where she has been massacred, oppressed. You know, there's plenty of times in history when she has been power, just like, you know, we have, for example, right now in Iran as well. Um, so I think history is always full of ups and downs. Uh, and all we need to really do uh, is just kind of deal with the time that we're, we're placed in. You know, whatever time we're in, us being here now, uh, we're here for a reason. Allah put us here for a reason. And, and, and it's to, to, to kind of uh, push forward his, uh, you know, the cause of Islam in whatever way and support the cause of Islam in whatever way we can. There's a beautiful hadith uh, by the Prophet, which is which he says, uh, no land is better than the other land. Uh, the best land is the one that you are in, right? So whichever, wherever you end up in, right now we're here in the UK, that's the best land for us. You know, if we get up and move later on somewhere else, for example, or wherever we lived before, that was the best land for us then. And, and I think the point of the hadith is to make the most of it. You know, to, to support the causes of Islam, to help the people around you, to help your society push forward. Um, and, uh, you know, when it comes to Islamophobia and Shia phobia, like Nibal said, it will always be there. 
uh, and we just have to f uh, fight it in different ways. You know, whether it's us uh, getting killed and executed, or it's us, you know, being uh, 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 assassinated in the media, for example, or you know, whether whatever kind of fight it is, we just have to ensure that we are there for that fight. We're yeah, using we, the language have, fight again, though. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we don't need to. Uh, it is fighting, isn't it? Because it, I, I, well, other than fighting, I think striving, striving. We have to strive. I mean, that's what the whole purpose of Islam, the purpose of the the faith, is, right? You strive. I think, sorry, I think a, better, a better word than fight is, is struggle. That, that's what I would use. I think. Yeah. Just, just make sure there's no misunderstanding. <laughs> yeah. So you struggle and you strive and you push forward, and that's not just in society, but within your own self as well. There's a hadith from uh, the fifth Imam where like some people come to visit him. Uh, and one of them says, Imam, that I live in uh, a Kafir country. So I'm not here in Medina. I did Hijrah and I live in a Kafir country. And there are only three or four of us in that whole city. Um, and Imam says, so what do you do? He says, uh, well, the, we can't do anything. I mean, it's not a Muslim place. So all we do is once uh, a week, we get together and we just retell hadith that we remember um, and we tell each other about them. There's you know, a handful of us and one person will say one hadith, I'll say one hadith, another one will say one hadith. And that's all we do. We just uh, recall these hadith and then we go about our business and you know, try and maintain our faith. The Imam says to them, may the mercy of God be upon you. He says that if you were to die in this state of being in Alam al-Kufr, in a, a Kafir place, country, or uh, a non-Islamic land, and you were to die in that while doing these actions of trying to keep alive our teachings, says you will be raised on Yawm al-Qiyamah as an Ummah in and of yourself. You know, you will be an Ummah. So I think uh, as with all the problems and things that we can potentially face, our ability or our chances of getting closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala are increased a lot more living uh, in these non-Muslim countries. You know what this reminds me of? This reminds me of, um, uh, you know, we're repeating a hadith even here in the West, but we're using our own language to speak the hadith. We're saying them in English. And there's a long time where many of the words of Ahlul Bayt were never even spoken in this tongue. But look at Azadari, for example, where it became part of our culture in the East, and now it's become part of our culture in the West. Like, even the way that English language is used for Azadari is, is brand new. And for this, we have to go to Nuri, because Nuri, you're an authority on this topic. <laughs> when you're translating these things like Azadari in this tradition we have into English for the first time, does it feel like you are, like, does it feel like you're at the final frontier, like we are pushing forward and how many forms of azar we can exhibit? Yeah, I can, sorry. Does it feel like we are, you know, we're doing something new, like we are taking our old ahadith that we have had and we're giving them a new existence here, in this case, in a new language, mm. for example. It's an, it's an interesting way to phrase it, because I think when it comes to me uh, personally, you know, I think even Nabil would, would agree, you know, my main language is English. <laughs> I speak English, so... When I'm when I when we're writing or, or, or sharing poetry in English or or writing as there in English, I don't feel like we're the the, the mentality isn't that we're doing something new or, or or shaking the world or or trying to push a frontier. Rather, it's just like we're just expressing ourselves in the way we know how. That's it. You know, we're just a product uh, of our circumstance. Uh, and you know, if I was 
born and raised uh, and lived in Pakistan or an Arabic country, uh, I would be doing the same thing in Urdu or in Arabic, you know, and I think we're just so blessed, you know, and I think going back to that conversation of us being here in the West, we're just so blessed to be in the West because everything we do almost stands out more. You know, you have so many, uh, mashallah, speakers uh, who, who speak in English like Nabil and, and preach in English who stand out much more than, than uh, people do uh, back home because there's just, there's just so many and there's, just so, there's so few of us here. Um, Nabil stands out because he's Nabil, let's be real. Like, you know. <laughs> That's true as well. But I think, I think what's, so, what's so beautiful about English is that, you know, it, um, it, it feels new because we're just so used to even here, even though we've been here for like 20, 30 four years um it, it feels so new to us because when when communities did move over here there was that you know kind of uh, uh struggle to to hold on to uh heritage culture and language which you know even Sistani says is important um but at the same time with our generation who grew up uh here in this country um you know i speaking to many friends obviously i'm i'm, I'm a Riva, but speaking to many friends who who grew up in the muslim communities they felt very detached from what was happening because the, there was that language barrier, right? So I don't think English should overtake uh, our, our, our language, our, our, uh, you know, languages of where we're from, um, but English is definitely uh, there to help us connect, uh, to help us connect to the religion because we do speak English, we think in English, you know, we dream in English. Um, like Nibel said, the West is home, like it or not, <laughs> that is what it is. Um, and I think, um, so, so, so definitely when we push forward uh, English as a diary, that is, kind of like um, the mentality and also it feels like a duty because you know sometimes I mean even like from my own personal perspective of, of, of uh, creating like albums for example Muharram there's been many times where I just I, I don't I don't feel the the drive or the energy to do it but sometimes it feels like a duty upon me because you know there's um, there's a, 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 a big lack uh, when it comes to the English language you know there, there, there's many uh, Rosaias and poets are doing fantastic work, but sometimes there are years where you don't see a lot of work being put out there. So, you know, it almost feels like a duty uh, on oneself to go out and do it because there, there is more of a gap than there is, for example, in the Urdu Arabic world. Um, so that is definitely kind of my mentality when it comes to pushing that stuff out. Yeah, I think that's uh, it's really important. Uh, but I would I may go uh, one step further uh, than Anuri, uh, and that is to say that actually uh, we need to get into the mindset that the languages of our parents are going, they're going like as much as I want to teach my, the next generation, you know, it's slipping away. And while I'm fighting this battle and I have this huge debate with my own friends um, who are very much all about Urdu and, you know, having uh, uh, Urdu, 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 and they're saying that's how we learn uh Urdu by going to these majalis and i'm like no we didn't it's because our parents spoke to us in it um or we had one parent that spoke to us solely within that language so in the case of my father my father came here in uh 1967 um and so he was at the age of 14 here so he practically grew up he spent more time here than he has in uh pakistan uh, and so we would speak to him solely in English most of the time. Uh, but with my mom, who came over in uh, 84 after they got married, we spoke to her only in Urdu and that's how we maintained it. And obviously then learning Farsi and Arabic and other things that improved our, uh, our Urdu somewhat. 
but now going forward, you know, you, I talk to my friends. I said, what do you talk to your wife? You know, it's in English, and then, uh, and you know, you know, they try and talk to their kids in uh, in Urdu to try and show, look, my kid does not, and the kid just stands there and <laughs> in English, and I'm like, look, what are you putting all of that effort in to teach him a language? He's just going to go and, you know, why don't you just accept that? Okay, look there's nothing English, there's nothing bad with English, you know, why don't we just teach him the faith in English, and there's a lot of stuff, you know, I love people say to me that, um, you know, why don't you do Urdu Majalis as well, and I, and I always say to them, because I can get away with saying so much more in English, without <laughs> having to raise an eyebrow, Urdu, I'm always going to be constantly on eggshells, oh my god, I'm going to offend this person, oh my god, I'm going to offend that person, in English, I can get away with saying, you know, the truth, the realities, uh, that you know, people uh, people are going to get uh, aren't going to get so wound up about. So the more we're obsessed, and uh, say Sistani's point in her, and the uh, point of all the maraja, you know, um, is important. But at the same time, we've got to look forward, like 15 years down the line, are these kids going to speak? Yeah, you know, I think in 2009 or 10, uh, I was reciting in Glasgow. Uh, the first usher I did there, after the seventh night, a guy came up to me and he had both his uh, two young children with him. And he, had, he was crying and he goes to me, you know what, uh, I just want to thank you because this is the first time in 40 years of my life that I actually understood what happened in Karbala. Wow. And he goes, I was same age as my kids when I came Oh, oh, he was born there, and I've been coming to the majlises all of this year for 40, all these years, 40 years of my life have gone by, and I actually really didn't know what happened because I couldn't connect or understand the language. So you have people like that, and our insistence on holding on, I'm not, again, once again, I'm saying that it's not a bad thing to know our mother tongues. In fact, it's not a bad thing to learn Farsi or Arabic or any other language, you know, especially Arabic. It, you know, there's a lot of benefit in it, but you know, right now time is moving fast, and society is developing, and the mindsets are changing so fast that if we are stuck behind trying to teach them a language for seven, eight, nine years before then we can teach them the depth of the religion, well, why not start teaching them the depth of the religion right now in a language that they understand, so at least they can preserve their faith. At times, it seems to me. Like, you know, our aim is the language, not the faith. I'm actually really glad you made that point in the bill because I, I've, I've actually calmed down a lot over the past few years. When I first started uh, writing and sharing poetry and, 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 and reciting, my mindset was always was militant, like English and only English. No Urdu, no Arabic, no Arabic words even in any, any of the poetry. And my point was always this. My point was always, look, if, for example, there's Martin or Nohas, and, you know, I'm very blessed that I understand, uh, you know, Arabic like, like you do, and you guys understand Urdu more than me as well. There's no feeling like you get when you go to a majlis and you hear the reciter recite uh, those lines of poetry that just hit so well, right? And my thing was always, it's not fair on the revert that walks in or the non-Pakistani Urdu majlis or the non-Iraqi Arabic majlis who sits there and doesn't connect the same way that we do with what's being said, right? So I was always very militant in that everything has to be in English uh, for that reason. The only reason I kind of calmed down is because I realized that no matter what I do or say, uh, people will always have this deep breathing attachment uh, with their heritage, which, you know, is important. And it's something that I can't understand because, you know, Nabil, you mentioned that, you know, you spoke to your dad in English. 
my mom was born here. My dad came here when he was four. Um, so uh, when I grew up, like I literally didn't speak any Urdu. The only Urdu that I spoke was to my grandparents now and then. And because I'm so disconnected from it, I, I forgot most of it. So I'm in a very strange place. And I discussed this on my own podcast um, a few weeks ago. Uh, when we, we spoke briefly about like Pakistani heritage and culture and our connection with it. My relationship with my Pakistani heritage is, is very uh, confusing because I'm, I'm so distant from it. And yet it also feels a bit like home. So when I hear Urdu or I go to Urdu Majlis, I don't understand 97% of what's being said. Um, but I have that kind of connection to my, my heritage kind of. So it, it's very strange. But I do also have to acknowledge that not everyone's connection with the heritage will be the same as mine. So for that reason, I have kind of calmed down. But I'm glad you said that because it is very important, like you said, to continue looking forward uh, and making sure that while we don't forget our heritage, we also understand what the, uh, the future is. And, you know, I think that it's, it, it's more so than just English language is also about presentation and the way you present yourself. Um, so, you know, for example, in the last few years, we've seen the rise of initiatives that have really taken, uh, you know, our thousand years of heritage and uh, presented it to the West uh, in the way that they can appreciate. So, for example, who is saying prime example of taking that legacy of Imam Hussein and presenting it in a way that the non-Muslim can understand and, and, and appreciate, um, you know, and I just still can't believe that, you know, it's, it's fantastic, but I still can't believe that, you know, in some communities uh, uh, in the West, uh, not London per se, uh, we have marches that go out on Ashura day. And yes, while it is amazing, you know, that they're going out and, and, and mourning and lamenting, which is, uh, you know, the po- which is important. You got to think about what's the point of going out in the march? What are you trying to achieve? The idea is to achieve attention to the fact that Imam Hussein was martyred today and you're mourning Imam Hussein, right? So at least have some planners in English, you know, at least have some signs in English, at least have some leaflets being given out saying what's happening here. Um, and I think what's really amazing, uh, I think it was 2014 or 2015 uh, or 2016, the Ashura March in London, uh, it's a big march where it gets maybe 10,000 or more attendees every year. Um, for the first time, they said, you know what we're gonna do? We're gonna have placards saying that we are Muslims marching for Hussein against terrorism, for Hussein against injustice, for Hussein against ISIS. And because of that, it got picked up by news outlets. And because of that, people paid attention, you know? So I think it's not just about speaking in English. It's not just about giving a majlis or reciting poetry in English. It's also about delivering uh, da'wah in a way that people can understand, you know, as, as the Quran that says, speak to people in a way they understand, whether it's Quran or the Holy Prophet, I'm not sure if I misquoted it. Um, but I think that's very important as well to keep in mind. Yeah, and I think uh, the other thing is um, a pet peeve of mine, I guess, is um, those of us that do speak in English, the the level of our English, you know, uh, the tenses are all wrong because maybe because we're trying to translate <laughs> from Arabic or we're trying to translate from Urdu and, uh, you know, it, it, uh, it'll often, you know, he would do this, he would go, Man, oh, that doesn't make any sense. That's not English. That's not a correct tense. And that really does my head in. And, you know, if you're going to present it, because you're an ambassador, right? You're an ambassador for the religion. You're an ambassador, not just for those people that are sitting there. There could be a non-Muslim sitting in there. You know, there could be someone spying on you sitting in there, whatever. You know, someone who's been introduced. Now, you've got to present the religion in the best light. You know, you've got to present it in the best words as well. And so there's a lot of... um, um, a, a lack when it comes to even our, you know, our English vocabulary um, of the member uh, specifically. So you know, there's a lot of things that we need to work on. 
But I really do think, you know, uh, you guys, uh, Brother Ali, and you guys pioneers in the azar of Sayyidul Shahada in English language. There were people that tried back in the 80s. Uh, but at that time, you know, there wasn't that much of a movement. But now I think the ground uh, is ready. You know, kids are more receptive to it and they can connect a lot more uh, with the message. Um, and I, I really think that we, we, have to, we have to push it more um, in a respectful way without hurting anyone's feelings. But because we can just tackle issues that are a lot more uh, in depth and, you know, we now out east they're calling us back that way uh, to come and speak in english there um you know because they're like oh we're, we're not we don't want to hear that traditional style of you know he did that and he did this then the imam did this and then it was all you know it was all no they, they want to hear not know, uh, the, the style of understanding yeah yeah no but i mean there's nothing wrong with that right but it it's about Okay, what did Ahlul Bayt come for? You know, what was the whole purpose of this religion? You know, is it was it for you to learn a language? Was it for you to get entertained, or was it for you to get closer to God? And mm -hmm. and that's a question I have to ask myself all the time. You know, uh, with younger cousins, younger brothers, and stuff. I'm like, okay, look, what is? I'm annoyed that they can't speak our mother tongue, but really, you know, I have this all the time with my cousins as well and their kids. And I'm like, why can't they speak uh, Urdu? Why can't they? But then I'm like. You know what? You need to snap out of this. Who cares? At least, can they recite Quran? Yes. You know, are they are they struggling? Am I going to help them try and understand the Arabic and learn the Quran? Yes. Okay. Well, then that's all that matters. Are they working towards the religion? Can I explain the religion to them in English? And do they understand it uh, well? Yes. So then, you know, I don't really care then about the the language now because it's their akhirah. Uh, and my own akhirah that we're, we're trying to save. It's funny, and uh, Abbas, sorry for continuously taking your mantle away from you, but you just keep, <laughs> keep taking good points. I just keep wanting to respond to them. Um, you know, you mentioned about uh, speaking English perfectly. You reminded me actually of a gentleman that I interviewed when I was working at El Bay TV years ago. Uh, he basically hosts a majlis uh, for various uh, milads and opats, and he was speaking about his upbringing here in the UK, and his English is like chiseled, like absolutely perfect. Uh, and he said, he goes, when I grew up, I was bullied uh, for having a different skin color and, and, and looking different. And he goes, as a result, I wanted to be better than the white man. I wanted to be better than the English man. I wanted to dress better than him. I wanted to speak better than him. I wanted to take what he had and take ownership of it and, and, and really uh, be better uh, than even he is at it. Um, so I think that kind of mentality is, is really something that we should uh, uh, keep in mind. And, and also just, you know, when it comes to serving Imam Hussein, giving the absolute best. You know, giving the absolute best that we can give. You know, there's a beautiful story, going a bit off topic. Um, uh, there's a beautiful story uh, that always kind of inspires me. Back in the early 1900s, when the shrine of Imam Hussein was looking to expand, back then there were various houses attached uh, to the shrine. That's 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 how the city was built. Um, and the shrine wanted to expand, so it bought out all the houses. Uh, and there was one house left. And they came to the guy and they said, "Listen, you want to buy out your house?" And he said, "No, there's no way I'm selling this house." So they didn't really know what to do. After about six months, he came to the shrine. He said, here's the keys to my house. Take it, the house is yours. And they said, what are you talking about? We came to you six months ago. You didn't want to sell it. What happened? And he said, well, I knew that if I want to give something to Imam Hussein, I have to give it, make sure it's the best when I give it. So before I, I, I uh, when you came last time, my house was a bit, you know, 
off key. So I spent time renovating it. I made it perfect. I made it the best house they could be. Then I took the keys and gave you the, the house because I want to give mom saying the absolute uh, best. So similarly, in everything that we do, especially here in the West, because there's more eyes on us, you know, there's a bigger magnifying glass on us because there's less of us and we stand out more. Um, we should ensure that we're doing the absolute uh, uh, best. And, and I think sometimes we need to also look at uh, continuously looking, look at involving the way uh, we preach. So for example, I know when it comes to lecturing, for example, or Majalis, we have a very specific uh, kind of uh, structure which we've been following for the past thousand years. Um, I think it's important to perhaps look at the way lectures are being given uh, these days uh, in our circles, you know, TED Talks, stuff like that, um, and, and, and perhaps looking at, look at the way, uh, the best way to deliver uh, the message and introducing those aspects into our community as well. So, like I said, using English, but also thinking about how to use uh, that language and continuously evolve uh, and move forward. People realized that when we had to do Zoom Majalis and we realized how like unnatural it was to trans transport that type of approach onto an online approach and like so many kinks about like who, who recites this and like the Quran and Hadzikistan and Marsian and whatever and like it's like ah oh, it wasn't always perfect for this format which implies it doesn't apply everywhere and now like there's so many new forms of azar which we see online as well I wonder if I think I think uh, sorry, sorry yeah, go ahead. just to cut you off I think in, in America and this is maybe a, a bigger conversation to have um, they are much more comfortable with this I feel like in America based on places that I visited and people I've spoken to people are much more in touch with their Western identity. I feel like here as a community, physically we're here, but mentally we're back in the East. Um, I feel like in America, perhaps because it's so detached or they're just, you know, so much more in the thick of it, people are much more American than we are British, if that makes sense. And I feel like as a result, you see these kind of uh, evolution. So there's a really uh, wonderful measures that happens in Dibble, Michigan, run by Main State Foundation, um, which is essentially what I describe. It's a TED talk uh, almost, um, you know, an interactive experience. Um, with uh, a reciter who basically uh, gives more of a performance than a, than a, than a, than a kind of like Martin uh, that we're used to, which kind of, you know, when you hear it and you think about it, it feels a bit off key, it feels a bit weird, but ultimately, if you were to give a majlis per se to a non-Muslim crowd, I would argue that that might perhaps impact them more, right? So there is, I think it's always important to push the ball a bit forward to, to explore new ways uh, of delivering the message because sometimes we can get so caught up in, the way we deliver the message. And that's not to say I'm either, you know, there's a certain type of Martin that I love to do. There's a certain type of Lakme that I, I love to hear. Uh, and, you know, it, it's hard for me to break away from that as well. You know, there's a certain type of way that I write, which might not be the best way, um, but I'm just so used to it. But perhaps we need to step out of our comfort zone uh, and see what is the best way uh, to deliver the message uh, in the society that we live in. Okay, Nabil, because we're coming to the end, I've got to give you that last word on this, on this exact point. Like, when you're choosing to deliver a message in the West, how aware are you of how different the audience can be? Um, you, you always have to be aware. You know, the, the narration says that speak to the people according to the, based upon their intellect, you know, and, and that's always been something that's uh, been important to me. You know, I can sit on a pulpit uh, or stand at a podium and speak about that which no one in the crowd will understand as a sign of my make them feel good about themselves that they've heard something great and make me feel even more better about myself that I've said something great but actually it does nothing for the development 
of the community, nothing for the development of myself. Um, and so you always have to have that, you know, you adjust, you speak to the level of the community. And that's why a lot of the times when I go for extended periods of time, you know, I'll only have maybe two or three lectures that I've prepared um, because those two or three lectures help me gauge where the community's at, what issues they have. And then the remaining lectures will be based solely around their issues, uh, roughly around what I had thought that I would speak about. So you always have to um, be, you know, uh, able to adapt. Um, and if you, if you can't adapt, you know, you'll, you'll end up staying behind. And then you're not doing a disservice to yourself, rather it's a massive disservice to the responsibility that's been placed on our shoulders as being individuals who go out and have been given the opportunity to be the Zakir of Aba Abdullah, you know, to speak about Ahlul Bayt alayhi wasalam. And I, I, one of the developments here, you know, this whole Zoom culture, it was so difficult. This shah, uh, this Muharram, it started from Shah Ramadan, but like Muharram, especially because those were pre-recorded uh, and for one particular place that I was doing it. The others were uh, um, live, but one of them was pre-recorded and that was just me in a room alone, uh, you know, having to pretend that today was the first of Muharram and it didn't sit well with me. And, you know, and also at one point, you know, this is the day of Ashura. Now I had to pretend that it's the day of Ashura. Uh, and it, that for me was a, a big thing. I was like, I was questioning myself. Am I acting here? Am I, you know, because it's not really the day of Ashura. And, uh, and then, but more difficult than that was just to sit in front of a camera and not have, you know, you feed off your crowd. Uh, your crowd when they're nodding or when they're giving some sort of acknowledgement, you know you're explaining and then you can see when people are confused and then you can go and explain a point more. Uh, but when you're sitting in front of a camera, it's a lot more difficult. Very, very true. I had to do one of these lessons and I had to just call someone just to, just because I knew they were on. I couldn't see them, but I needed someone there just to like have that kind of feedback. And we really hope that the listeners... Uh, feel like you know they we hope they appreciate this discussion and we hope that they uh you know continue to seek out opportunities to engage with ulama with speakers like yourselves in a way that benefits them rather than seeking in places where maybe it was not built for thank you so much to both of you thank you for taking part we have come to the end but i feel like we could have gone for much longer thank you and thank you to, to nuri um, alhamdulillah, I appreciate it. I think if we end the discussion to, together on a salat ala Muhammad wa ala Muhammad. And so, whilst others may want to discuss this in a very binary term of can you be a Muslim in the West or can Islam in the West you know, be compatible in a coherent way, for us, we start off by saying that we are from here. This is our home. We grew up here and, and our families are here. And yes, we don't know where we'll be tomorrow, but we know where we are now. And that is in our home and the place of our home, our language and our culture, as we discussed, are all that of the West. And at the same time, we do face the experience of practicing our religion in a way in which we preserve the essence of that religion. And we start to negotiate which aspects of the culture can we implement here, which aspects simply don't work. We mentioned, for example, language and teaching language to our children. We mentioned um, you know, education and where we have our principles in the education system here and how we have to have this constant struggle 
whilst not falling into a depression of despondence. And I really hope that you, the listener, can, can you know, have that balance as well in seeing how we are from the West, but we bring traditions and religion, which is not necessarily from here, but has just our right to belong here in our homes as it does back in the East. Um, and, and, and may the continues, may the communities of the West continue to, to prosper, be they here in the UK, where I'm speaking from, or in America, or in Europe, or wherever you're listening from, may, may there be true health in these communities, inshallah. Thank you for listening. We will see you in the next episode of Arba'in Reflections. <laughs>